Well, the boss is gone, you take over his room. <laughs> That's right. I was trying to figure out if this is going to work. This is not connected. Shoot. I guess that's not going to work. I'm ready. You guys all hear that ringtone? What? Do you hear that ringtone or just me? You hear it, right? Yeah, it's not, it's not this. This is not working. Shoot. All right, let's keep it open because people are going to come in here. I don't want you to make that. Okay, maybe get a cup and You guys keeping up with the so far? You going together? No, I do not anymore because of In school? Yeah, I Really? But you have the art school app? No, I bought it. I brought it back. I can't call my son during school. Oh. Okay, it's time to start. <laughs> Eight thirty, we start. I have the only helmet in the entire school. <laughs> okay, so let's get started. So we are on the top of Yudgimel Amit Aleph, thirteen A. The the Gemara was saying the idea that once once Yaakov was called Yisrael by Hashem. Even though he was one time called Yisrael, even after that, he was still sometimes called Yaakov. But generally speaking, he was called Yisrael. That was his main name. Yaakov was his non-primary name. And now the Gemara is saying a similar idea to what we said earlier, which is that after we celebrate, after we start celebrating the fact that Hashem took us out of the Gullus, right, the, the exile that we're in right now, and which is going to take us out with tremendous miracles, we will, the celebration of the fact that Hashem took us out will no longer be as primary due to the fact that it will be completely eclipsed by what will happen in the future. So the Gemara says a similar idea. And so too it says, We're quoting a Pasuk, and the Pasuk says, "Do not You will not remember the first ones, and the earlier ones you should not spend time thinking deeply about. When it says, don't remember the early ones, the first ones, that's referring to the subjugation of the kings who subjugated you. The Kalmanius Altis by that which it says that you should not spend time thinking about the earlier times. Zu Yitzias Mitzrayim. That's referring to Yitzias Mitzrayim. That's referring to when the fact that we were taken out of Mitzrayim. So you don't have to spend that much time thinking about the fact that we went out of Mitzrayim due to the fact that currently the nace that we're working with when, when we come out of um, Gullus is even greater. And also, there should be one more brachas coming. Okay. So okay, so that, that teaches us that we should it teaches us that when when we when we are in a position to remember, we're in a position to to celebrate the fact that Hashem has taken us out of the later Gallus, we will no longer be as busy with the fact that Hashem took us out of the Gallus and the triumph. In the Isa, that the idea is that now I'm going to, Hashem is speaking, that behold, I'm doing something new that will flourish. It's telling us that the older thing will no longer be as uh, preeminent. That is referring to the the war that will happen, we call the war of Gagumagag, in which Hashem is going to reveal himself to the world and destroy all the haters. Let us draw a parable. To what can this be compared? 
There was a person who was walking in the street. And he gets into a uh, confrontation with a wolf. And he is saved from that wolf. And from then on, he walks around and he's starting to tell people, you know what happened to me? You'll never believe it. I was walking down the street and I, I got it confronted by a wolf, but I was saved. Then all of a sudden he meets a lion and he gets saved from the lion. Then he starts talking about the fact that he got saved from a lion. Then he meets a snake. And he gets saved from the snake. He forgets the first two things. The first two things become as, as not even important once he gets saved from a snake. And then he starts only saying over the story of the Nachash of the snake. So too, B'nai Yisrael, Tzaras Achreines, Meshkachais Eserishainis. The the uh, the hard times of, of later will make us forget the earlier times as well. In other words, the fact that Hashem will save us from the Galus of the, the the later Galus, they'll make us forget the earlier Galus. Gemara continues along this vein that we had mentioned earlier, which is that Avram Avinu's name gets changed. So he said, Avram, who Abraham Bitchila. I'm sorry, who Abraham. The, uh, the name that he was originally went by, which is Abram, then his name got changed to Abraham. Originally, he was considered to be the father of Aram, the father of just his own nation. And afterwards, he is considered to be the father of the entire world. That's why Hashem changes his name. Originally, she was called, originally she was called Sarai. And then she got changed to Sarah. Originally, she was the princess of her own small little group, her own clan. And then later on, she becomes the Sarah, the princess of the entire world. Barakapara said over, Abram, anybody who says, who calls Abraham Avinu by the name Abram, after Hashem has changed his name to Abraham, he has violated a positive commandment. The Torah gives us a positive commandment. He shall no longer call his name Abraham, you should call his name Abraham. So if you don't call him Abraham and you call him Abraham, you violated a positive commandment. Shenemar, as it says, Abraham. It says in the Torah that Hashem is talking to Abraham and he says that from now on your name should be Abraham. So we still call him Abraham, we're making a mistake. This doesn't mean to say when you're reading the Torah portions in which he's still called Abraham, obviously you still read his name as Abraham. Rabbi Eliezer, Rabbi Eliezer says, Rabbi Eliezer not, takes it up a notch. He says, not only have you not performed a positive commandment, you've actually violated, transgressed a negative prohibition. What is that? Because he says, it actually says it explicitly in the Torah. And you shall never, your name shall never be called Avram again. It should now be changed into Avraham. So he says, not only is it not fulfilling a positive commandment, it's also violating a negative commandment. Gemara says, if that's true, that you're not allowed to call Abraham by the name Abraham anymore, then the halacha should also be the same thing by Sarah. You should no longer be able to call Sarah by Sari, as Sarai. But we never find that halacha anywhere in a Gemara. So what's the difference? By Abraham, the Torah tells us that Hashem tells Abraham, your name is no longer Abram, it is now Abraham, right? So that is a command to Abraham that his name has been changed. By Sarah, what happens is Hashem tells Abraham, your wife Sarai is no, should no longer be called Sarai, she should be called Sarah. Because he was speaking only to Abraham, so that's more of a limited change in her name. 
Right. I mean, now we all know because the Torah says so, but that's how the Gemara is able to say that one of them holds true forever and you can't you can't violate that, whereas the other one does not. So so yeah. So is is calling Avram Avraham one of the six hundred and thirteen mitzvahs or is so it would seem to be like that, you know. I, I don't think it's gonna be brought down in the I don't think it's brought down in, in by the Rambam, but maybe it is. I don't know. Yeah. According to the person who says that it's an essay, certainly is one of the six hundred and thirteen. According to the one who says that you you have, you know, um transgressed the negative commandment, it's also one of six thirteen. But we're gonna see there is one other opinion, okay? So if that's so, then if someone would call Yaakov Avinu, call him Yaakov and not call him Yisrael, that should also be a violation because Hashem said that from now on his name should be Yisrael and not Yaakov. Shani, Hasam, it's different over there. The Hadar Ahadrikra, because by Yaakov, Hashem himself later on calls him plain Yaakov and, and does not only call him Yisrael. So since Hashem himself sometimes calls him Yaakov, that shows us that it is still okay to call him Yaakov. As it says, So Hashem comes to Abraham, I'm mean, sorry, Yaakov in the middle of the night, and he says, Yaakov, Yaakov. So he still calls him Yaakov afterwards. And there we see that his name changed from Yisrael to Yaakov, sorry, from Yaakov to Yisrael, but it has not changed in a way that he can never go back to Yaakov. Yes, good question. This is a Pasuk in Nehemiah. And the prophet is speaking in Nehemiah. And what does he say? He says, you are Hashem who chose Abram, right? Now, we said that it's forbidden to call Abraham by the name Abram. But Nehemiah comes far after the time that Hashem changes his name, Abram's name, from Abram to Abraham. So how come Nehemiah is allowed to call him Abraham, right? It seems to be that it's not true. It is okay to call him by his earlier name. Over there is an exception. Because what Nehemiah was doing is he was saying, you are the God who chose the man whose name was Abram, who was just the father of one nation, and changed his destiny into being the father of the entire world, changed him to Abraham. So he's not calling him Abraham as he is today. He's saying, you are the God who chose that Abram thousand plus years ago at that time and changed him to Abraham. So that is still okay. That's essentially what he's saying. He's saying, you are Hashem who chose Abram. So at the time that Hashem chose him, was he Abraham or was he Abraham? When Hashem chose Abraham to become the father of the Jewish nation, he was still Abraham. Then he changes his name later. So he's saying, you chose the man Abraham to become Abraham, essentially. Not, not in so many words, but he's saying, you chose Abraham to be the father. That, that is what he's saying. Yeah, that's what he's saying in the process. We finished our first parak. This should be the first of many prakim. Everybody knows how many blat there are in Shas. I don't think everybody knows how many problems there are in Shas. I don't know either. Uh, okay, next paragraph. You're reading Torah, right? You have a Torah in front of you and you're reading it. And it comes time to, to say Kriyashma. And the, the Mishnah tells us that if you have intent in your heart, you fulfill your mitzvah, right? Umar is going to get into exactly what that means. Yeah. Okay, well, Joey does know. 517 chapters. Thank you. So one down, 516 to go. Now the Gemara goes into an interesting question, which is like this. What sort of interruptions are acceptable when you are saying the Birchas Kriyashma and when you are saying Kriyashma Atzah? Right? Are any interruptions acceptable? What sort of reasons would, would justify an interruption? 
If you are in between different prakim, different chapters of the blessings and the Shema. So in other words, let's say you have, you start off with the, the bracha of Yetzir HaMa'oyres, right? So you finish that first bracha and you say, Baruch HaTashem, Yetzir HaMa'oyres. At that point, you might be permitted to do certain interruptions. But in the actual blessing itself, right, you would not be permitted to do the same level of interruptions. You might have to be a higher standard of what's acceptable to have an interruption. Then we have a different thing called, the, the, so that's the in-between would be in-between chapters. And then the emsa, the middle of would be in the middle of the blessing or in the middle of one of the actual chapters of the Shema itself. So, the prakim shel covet. So if you're in between chapters, you're allowed to ask how someone is doing in terms of just someone who you're asking of because you respect them, right? What is this level of respect? So it's unclear. It could either be the level of respect to someone who, who you have an actual obligation to respect, such as your father, such as a king, such as your, your teacher, your rebbe, right? They have an obligation, a biblical obligation to respect those people. It could be that's what the Gemara means. Alternatively, it could just mean, according to other Rishonim, it just means someone who you should respect him because he's someone who deserves respect because he's a Talmud Chacham, but not that there's necessarily a Torah obligation to respect him. So if it's someone who you respect, then you, you're allowed to ask, how is he doing in between the chapters? And you could also answer. And the Gemara is going to explain exactly what we're telling you why when we say, well, if you're allowed to actually ask him how he's doing, it certainly makes sense that you should be allowed to respond if he asks you how you're doing, right? And for the same reason that you're actually allowed to initiate the conversation, it should certainly be acceptable for you to respond if he initiates the conversation. So the Gemara is going to get into that point. So this is the first opinion. This is the very mayor. So mayor says, if you're in between chapters, you're even allowed to ask. And you're also allowed to respond. If you're actually in the middle of a chapter, then you're allowed to ask how the person is doing if there is if you are afraid of that person. Right? What type of fear are we talking about? We're not necessarily talking about a fear that you think the guy's going to kill you if you don't answer him. Because if that was true, we don't need the Mishnah to tell us that you're allowed to answer him. Of course, you're allowed to answer him if you think he's going to kill you. We're talking about someone where there's a lower level of fear, there's a lower level of, of um, respect that you have for this person that almost leads to literal levels of fear. That's the words of Romero. So Romero has a standard like this. In between the chapters, respect is enough to, to allow you to, to interrupt. In the actual chapter, when you're in the middle of the chapter, only if there's fear are you allowed to interrupt. Okay? Now we go to the opinion of Rebuda. If you're in the middle of the chapters, you can ask how the person is doing out of fear. And you're even allowed to respond to someone who you don't have any fear for, but you do have respect for. Right? So he lowers it down one notch. Right? So in terms of initiating, it has to be a higher level. But in terms of responding, it has to be a lower level. But if you're in between chapters, according to the opinion of Rabbi Huda, you're allowed to initiate out of some, for someone who you respect, right? and of course for someone who you fear. And you can actually answer, respond to anybody who says something to you, anybody at all. It doesn't have to be someone you respect. It doesn't have to be someone who you fear. So he lowers them down to not, one notch at each level, right? And he also says that the ability, that there's a differentiation drawn between initiating and responding, okay? What's the definition of in between chapters? In between the first bracha before Kriyashma and the second bracha, right? So between Yetzir HaMa'eres and Ahavas Elam. I'm sorry, after you finish the first, para, first chapter of Shema, 
and you're up to Vahayim Shemaya, that's considered in between chapters. Bain Vahayim Shemaya Levayimar, in between the second chapter of Shema and the third chapter of Shema. Bain Vayimar la Emasriyatsu. In between Vayimar and the next bracha after Shema, Emasriyatsu. Abihuda Imar Bihuda says, Bain Vayimar la Emasriyatsu lo Yafsi. Bihuda says, you are not permitted to interrupt at all in between in between the third chapter of Shema and Emasriyatsu. Right? And the Gemara is going to get into exactly why that's so important that you can't interrupt. How come we decided to set up Shema that first comes Shema, the Shema and the Ahafta Ace, and then afterwards comes Hayyim Shema, right? Why is that the order? So that first you can accept upon yourself the yoke of heaven. When you say Shema Yisrael and you say the Ahafta Ace, what you're saying is, I, I love Hashem and I accept that Hashem is the God and Hashem is the only God, right? That's what you say in the first chapter. So first you accept that Hashem runs the world. Then after you accept that Hashem runs the world, then it's apropos for you to say, I also accept upon myself that I will do the mitzvahs that Hashem commands me. Right? So the first step is I accept that Hashem runs the world and Hashem has, is the boss and he's allowed to tell me what to do. Second step is, and I accept to do the mitzvahs as commandments. Why is Vahayim Shemaya before Vahayimah? Shavayim Shemaya Nayag bein b'yayim v'yayim alayla. Vahayimah in inayag ala b'yayim v'vad. Because the second chapter of Shema is an obligation to say both in, in the morning and at night. Whereas the third chapter of Shema is only an obligation to say in the morning, it's not an obligation to say at night. So since one of them is an obligation both times, one of them is only an obligation in the morning, so we prefer to put the one that's an obligation both times ahead of the one that's not an obligation. So we do say the third one at night. We certainly do, yeah. So, but we saw earlier that was already, might have been a machlokas earlier, right? It was really already a dispute earlier. Is it an obligation to say the third one at night or not? So could we were following in that same Yeshua ben Karcha is probably going like the opinion of the Chachamim who argued on Benzoma earlier, right? So remember that that part that we said over from the Haggadah, that um, that when people that, that we read over in the Haggadah that Elizabeth and Azariah says I was seventy years old and I still had not found out this idea that you have to talk about Yitzias Mitzrayim at night until I heard Benzoma say that you talk about Yitzias Mitzrayim at night. And then the Chachamim argued, and they said, that's not going to teach you that you should talk about Yitzhak Mitzrayim at night, leaving Egypt at night. Rather, it's going to teach you that you should talk about Yitzhak Mitzrayim, leaving Egypt, even after Mashiach comes. Right? So in that, in that second opinion, that seems to be who Rishul ben Karcha, in our Mishnah, agrees to. Because Rishul ben Karcha says, why is Mahayim Shemaya? What was that? Why is Mahayim Shemaya before? Before Bayeimer. The reason why it's before is because... That's a good question. I don't know. Uh, that's a good question. Can you repeat the questions? Yeah. So the question was like this. The question is, if we said it's very important to say MS Vyatsiv, that right when you finish Shema, the very next word after saying it should be Hashem, Elekechem, MS. It's very important to connect those two. So if we would have said, Bahayim Shemaya last, we would not have finished with Hashem, Elekechem, MS. We would have finished with... Um, Right? So that wouldn't have had the same ring that the Gemara is going to say is an important thing to have together. So I hear what you're saying. Okay. I think on, on, on a similar note, it's, he said, it said you can interrupt and make greetings after each paragraph of the Shema. So does that mean you can interrupt between before the MS? Because that's not strictly part of the paragraph of the Shema. Yeah, so that, that is actually a machlekes tanoim. So one tana says that 
it's still considered to be in between prakim, it's in between chapters, and you're only permitted to interrupt for, spe for specific things. But the other kind of Rabbi Huda's opinion, and that's who we follow, says that you can't interrupt at all in between, in between the third paragraph of Shema and actual MS, that you're not allowed to interrupt at all. Okay? Shema Minas, the Gemara says that we should be able to derive from our Mishnah an answer to a question that plagues the Gemara. This question comes up in many places. And the question is, mitzvah trichas kavana or not? When you're doing a mitzvah, is there an obligation to have intent at the time that you're doing the mitzvah? And if you don't have intent, you don't fulfill the mitzvah? Or do we say there's no obligation to have intent? Or maybe there's an obligation, but it's not going to be something that will completely obliviate the mitzvah if you didn't do it. Okay? So the Gemara says you should be able to bring out from our Mishnah that mitzvahs need kavana. Why should you be able to bring it out? The Gemara says, let's infer it from the very first thing in the Mishnah. The Mishnah tells us that if you're reading in the Torah and it gets to the time of Shema and you're in the middle of reading the portion that is related to Shema, if you have in mind, then you fulfill your mitzvah. The implication is that you have to have in mind to fulfill your mitzvah. And if you don't have in mind, you don't fulfill your mitzvah. So that should solve it. The age-old question, do mitzvahs need kavanah or not? You have to have in mind that you have to have intent that you are fulfilling a mitzvah or else it's not a and not fulfillment of the mitzvah, or is it not necessary to have intent that you are fulfilling the mitzvah with this act, right? So when you pick up the little of an esri, do you have to have a mind to yourself? Internet connection is So do you have to have a mind when you pick up the little of an esri that what you're doing is you are at, 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 you're about to fulfill the positive commandment of picking up a little of an esri? Do you actually have to have that in mind? You just have to think, I'm doing this because I'm doing it. And that's already enough. Right. So, so yeah, so it's not really the proper kavana that that is talking about is more like a pure shamilas kavana. There's two different levels of kavana. We're going to get into that today. I mean, there's 58 levels of kavana. There's many different deeper levels of meaning that what, what their intention, what their concentration level can be at. But the base level that we're talking about is, is it an obligation to think to yourself when you're doing that mitzvah act that I'm doing this act to fulfill the fact that Hashem told me to do so? Right? Is that a necessity? Right? That's the question, Mitzvah Shri or not, right? The Allah at the end of the day is going to be yes, Mitzvah Shri And you actually do have to have a mind to fulfill, that you are fulfilling a positive commandment when you do that, or else you don't actually fulfill the Mitzvah. But the Gemara right now is saying, at this point, it's not yet decided, and the Gemara is asking, well, we should be able to bring a proof from this Mishnah to our question. Because if the Mishnah says that you only fulfill the Mitzvah of reading Shema if you have a mind in your heart that you're fulfilling that Mitzvah, that should seem to indicate that, that you need it to fulfill the Mitzvah, you need to have a mind. So, my, my im kibenli, but the Gemara says, no, it's not necessarily such a clear proof. Because what you could say is that when the, when the Mishnah tells us that if you have in mind, if you have intent in your heart, likrais, what does it mean they have intent in your heart to read? Likrais, what you had intent is to actually be reading it. What do you mean? Likrais, the Gemara says, you had intent to be reading it. Well, obviously you had intent to be reading it. That's the act that you're doing, right? So you can't tell me intention to read. Well, of course, that's what you're doing. The Gemara says like this, we're talking about an interesting case. You had a Torah in front of you and you're reading the Torah, but you're not reading the Torah for the purposes of actually reading the words. You're reading the Torah, let's say, for the purposes of making sure that the letters are in the right places. You're a soldier, you're a scribe, and you're making sure that everything is correct before you go on to the next portion, right? So you're going through the letters, but you're not really reading it. So if you then, while you're doing that, if you actually think to yourself of fulfilling the mitzvah, that will still work. So it's not teaching us that you have to have intent to fulfill the mitzvah. It's just teaching us that you have to have intent that now I'm actually reading it, as opposed to just going through the letters of my mind. I 
And that's an interesting point. You know, the, in, in terms of like the merit that you get from not doing a negative commandment. Yeah, I mean, you get more merit if you hadn't, if you, let's say, wanted to do it or if you're not doing it only because you know, Hashem commands. That we just do by nature. It's a higher, <laughs> it's a higher level of fulfillment if you have intent that I don't want to do it, as opposed to someone who says I have no interest in a cheeseburger. They're not fulfilling the mitzvah as well as someone who says I would love a cheeseburger, but I'm not going to do it because Hashem told me not. Yeah, but now you're, now you're teaching it as well. Yes, yes, yes. So I don't think I don't think we're saying that if, even if you hold that mitzvah strichas kavana, I don't think we're saying that it's not considered a fulfillment of not violating a negative commandment, right? There's too many double negatives over there, right? Ultimately, the, the idea is Hashem doesn't want us to do an action. So we didn't do the action. We get the same merit? Not necessarily, but we didn't do the action. That's that's for sure. Tan Rabbanim, we learned in Ebraisa. Priyashma Kiksava, Divrei Rebbe. Very interesting machlekas here. The, the, um, and we actually come out the way that we wouldn't expect it. But basically, the halach is like this. There's a machlekas tanayim in Ebraisa, right? Do you have to say Kriya Shema only in Hebrew, the way it's written? Or is it okay to say Kriya Shema in any language at all? Say Kriya Shema in Spanish, say Kriya Shema in Japanese. If that's your language and you understand it, fulfillment of the mitzvah. So Rebbe takes the side that the only way to fulfill the mitzvah is actually reading it in Hebrew. But the Chavim say, no, you can read it in any language as long as you understand it. My time at the Rebbe, what's... Oh, so, no, so that's actually interesting. So if you don't understand it in Hebrew, everybody agrees you can fulfill the mitzvah. But even the Chavim say, I'm sorry, yeah, even the Chavim say, if you don't understand any language at all, let's say, then you can only fulfill the mitzvah in Hebrew. Nobody is saying that you can fulfill the mitzvah by reading it in a language you don't understand, unless it's Hebrew. What if you only know English? So according to, according to the Chachamim, yes. And that's, what was that? We'll, we'll talk about that. We'll talk about that. We'll get to Halacha later. Okay. So in, in general, if someone's asked a question in the room, can you repeat the question? Yes, who yes the sure. Yeah, my bad. Thank you. So here's the, the question just was, let's say you only know English and you don't understand any Hebrew at all. Is it better to read it in English and then at least you'll understand it? Or is it better to read it in Hebrew where you don't understand it? And the answer really is, it could be that both of them would be the same good, but today we don't do it at all. Today we, we actually try to always read it in Hebrew and we don't, we don't rely on, on the the, the main halacha, which is that you could actually read it in English too. And the reason given for that is like this. If you would read it in English or in any other translation, you would have to be 100% positive that your translation is exactly correct. And every single word in Hebrew is translated correctly. There's too many different options for what the Hebrew words really mean for us to really say that we fulfilled our mitzvah by reading it in one English translation. You open up one sitter, it translates words one way. You open up another sitter, it translates the words a different way. So how can you say that you fulfill the mitzvah properly if it has to be translated exactly correct? But if you, we know that if you say it in Hebrew, even if you don't get all the nuances, if you say it in Hebrew and you know what you're trying to do is, is accept upon yourself the the uh, the yoke of heaven, then you have to fulfill your mitzvah. So ideally, that's what one should do. Um, okay, so what's the reasoning? My time at the Rebbe, what's the reason of Rebbe? It says in the Pasik, it says, So Rebbe understands like this. Once it says, It's teaching us that the way in which it was written originally in the Torah, that is the way in which it should remain for you to fulfill your mitzvah. And the Chachamim, what's their reasoning? It says in the Torah, It says in the Torah that Shemai, listen to. So what they understand from that is, why does it have to say Shema Yisrael? Teaching you that 
you have to be able to, you're, I'm sorry, not that you have to, but that you can fulfill the mitzvah as long as you say it in any language that you actually understand. That's what they understand from this passage. So what does Rebbe, who says that he can only say it in Hebrew, right? What does he do with that extra word, Shema? Why, what does he do with it, right? It's not going to teach you that you can say it in any language. Rebbe says, I need the word Shema to teach us that when you say Shema, you can't whisper it in a way that you couldn't even hear your own words, right? You can't say Shema. You can't mouth it, right? You have to actually say it loud enough that you can hear your own words. That's what Rebbe says. Now, Rabbanan Sabilu, but the Rabbanan, they don't have that word Shema to teach us that halacha, because the Rabbanan used that word to teach you that you can say it in any language. So what did the Rabbanan do? How did they know this mitzvah that you have to actually be able to hear the words? They hold like the opinion that you actually don't have to hear it to fulfill your mitzvah obligation, right? It's important maybe to say it, because if you say it out loud, it's going to help with your kabbana, it's going to help with your ability to concentrate and focus on the words, but it's not necessary, right? Now, what do the Chachamim do with the Pasuk that Rebbe used to teach you that it can only be read in Hebrew? The Chachamim, they didn't hold it can only be read in Hebrew. So what do they do with this Pasuk that says, that Rebbe said that teaches us it can only be read in Hebrew? They say that comes to teach us that you cannot read the Shema out of order. You can't read Shema and then go to Vayemar and then go back to Vahaya. So when it says Vahayu, it's teaching you that it has to be specifically in the order in which we read it. That has to remain. You can't switch that order. What does Rebbe do with this problem? How does Rebbe know this idea? Where does he find this principle that you cannot read it out of order? He learns it out from the fact that it says in the Torah, it says, right? So he says, why does it say, it should be that, that these words, right? What he learns that to teach you is that these, these words have to be in the specific order or else it doesn't work. And the Chavim, what did they do with Hadvarim? They said that's not such a great Russia. The fact that it says Ha, an extra hey, as opposed to just saying straight Dvarim, it's not enough of a reason to, to learn something from that, and therefore they don't have anything extra. Okay, so now the Gemara goes on to a little bit of a side point. It would seem to be inferred then that Rebbe must hold that the entire Torah can be said in any language at all. Right? Because if Rebbe held that the entire Torah could not be said in any language and it has to be said in Hebrew, then why would I think that Shema should be an exception and that Shema can be said in any language? Right? So it must be that Rebbe holds the entire Torah can be said in any language at all. And only when it came to Shema, we think of Torah had to tell us Shema cannot be said in any language at all. Shema can only be said in Hebrew. If you would think that the entire Torah is only allowed to be said over in Hebrew, then why does the Torah need to? specify that Shema can only be said in Hebrew. Well, the entire Torah is the same Allah, it can only be said in Hebrew. So why do you need to specify by saying Bahayu only Hebrew? It's the Mishim Nechsev Shema, like this. I might have thought that because it says Shema, that I'm actually permitted to say it, I'm actually permitted to listen in another language. I'm permitted to say it in another language. So therefore I needed to say Bahayu to say that Shema is not coming to teach you that you can say it in any other language. Shema is coming to teach you, you have to say it loud enough that you can hear. And Bahayu is teaching you that it can only be said in Hebrew. Um, Remember the Sabri Rabban, and how about the flip side? Maybe you should be able to infer from here that the Chachamim hold, the sages hold, the Chalotarikulam, they must hold that the rest of the Torah can only be said in Hebrew, right? If we would say that the entire Torah can be said in any language, Shema, the Kasarachman, Alamali, if the Torah, anyways, can be said in any language at all, why do I have to specify, oh, Shema, when it says the word Shema, it's teaching you that Shema can be said in any other language? Well, 
if every other word can also be said in every other language, so what's the big deal? Why does the Torah need to tell us Shema and Shema can be said in any other language? It's the Rechmishon Vahayu. You need it the other way around. Because it says Vahayu, and it might have thought to say Vahayu is coming to exclude any other language and only Hebrew it works for Shema. Therefore, it needs to say Shema to tell you that not just the rest of the Torah, but even Shema can be said in any other language. We learned in a Raisa. We learned that from Ahayu that you cannot read it out of order. I might have thought to say that the entire parsha, the entire first chapter of Shema, needs to have a high level of kabana, needs to have intent to fulfill a mitzvah. Rather, but back the Torah tells us, right, these words, when the Torah uses that word of ha'ela, at kansrich kabana, what the Torah is trying to teach us is like this up until the word ha'ela, you need to have kabana, you need to have intent to fulfill a mitzvah. Once you get past the word ha'ela, you no longer need to have intent to fulfill a mitzvah. As long as you read the words, you're good. Give me Rebbe This is the opinion of Rebbe Amalei Rebbe Kiva, Rebbe Kiva response. It also says, turning the page now, it also says in the Torah, it also says in the Torah, these words that I am commanding you today on your heart, right? So Rabbi Kiva says, no, not just up until Ha'ela. Actually, the entire parsha needs the first, the entire first chapter of Shema. In other words, Shema Yisrael, Baruch Shem, and the Ahavta all need to have the concentration and focus to fulfill the mitzvah. Amar Rabbah Barbachana, Rabbi Yechanan, Rabbi Barbachana says in the name of Rabbi Yechanan, Halacha Rabbi Kiva, the Halacha follows the opinion of Rabbi Akiva that you need to have focus and, and, um, and intent on the entire first chapter of Shema. Other people say this statement on a different brisa. One who is saying Shema needs to have intent in his heart. Racha says in the name of Rabbi Yehuda, once you have in mind in the first chapter, you don't need to have in mind in the later chapters. Amar Rabbi Rechana, Amar Rabbi Yechana, Rabbi Rechana says in the name of Rabbi Yechana, Halacha Kerabacha, Shama Mishum Rabbi Yehuda. So in both of these prices, what we end up with is, Rabbi Rechana says in the name of Rabbi Yechana, that the halacha is you have to have concentration, you have to focus for the entire first chapter of Shema. Halacha today does not follow that. Halacha today follows that at a minimum, you have to have focus on the first, on the first um, Shema Yisrael and Baruch Shem. That's the minimum. That's the beer minimum. So if you don't have focus on that, even then technically you would have to say Shema again. Right? But then after that, obviously you're supposed to have focus and you're supposed to have concentration, you're supposed to be thinking about what you're doing. But if you don't, the diabet after the fact, it's not going to make you go back. Tanya Idah, we learned another Braisa. Says Vahayu that you should not read it backwards, at, you know, retroact out of order. When it says al-vavecha, Rizutra says that teaches you up until then is the, the mitzvah of having kavana, of having intent and concentration to fulfill the mitzvah. Mikan ve'elech mitzvah kriya. After that, it's not a mitzvah of, of intent, it's a mitzvah of reading. Right? It's a little bit of cryptic words over here. Is it a mitzvah of reading or is it a mitzvah of kavana? What does that mean? So Reishia says the opposite. He says, up until this point in Shema, you have to have the mitzvah of reading, and after that is the mitzvah of intent. What are you going to tell me? Why is it that the first chapter needs this mitzvah of reading it, of speaking it out loud? Why? Because it says, that you should say over these words, right? So that teaches you that for the first chapter, you need to actually speak it out loud. The second chapter, you don't need to speak it out loud. There's no 
implication of to say it orally. Rather, all you need to do is just read it inside but without, without actually speaking it out loud. Hachanami, it actually says in the second chapter as well, that you should speak these words out. So once again, if, if the reason why you're supposed to speak the words out loud is because it says, because it says vidibar tabam, so in the second chapter also says vidibar tabam. I'm sorry, hasumnami haksiv al levavchem lidaber bam. It also says in the second chapter al levavchem lidaber bam to speak about these words. So it should be the same reasoning. You should also have to say the second chapter out loud. You need that really for the fact that the second chapter has these words lidaber bam. It's really come to teach you the halacha of Rabbi Yitzchak. The Amar of Samtem Estvarei Ela Tzricha Shadei Sima Keneged Alev. He says. What we learn out from this the second chapter is that the words of this Shema shall be placed next to your heart. How are they placed next to your heart? Because they're put into the tefillin. And when, you're, when you have your tefillin shalyad on, your tefillin shalyad, the batim, the, the head of it is right next to your heart. So these words are placed on your heart. Not that you need to speak out these words on your, on, out loud, but they need to be placed next to your heart. It's close enough to your heart. That's a good question. So Robin, what, what Joey was asking is, if you're a lefty, then your tefillin is on your right arm, and then they don't don't get so close to your heart. So um, I think the answer is that it's close enough to your heart. Um, yeah, I think that's probably the answer. You made tefillin? That's pretty cool. Okay. Next, let's go further in the Gemara. Amar Mar, Rabbi Amar Adkan Mitzvah Kriya. Mikan Be'elach Mitzvah Karbana. Up until here is the Mitzvah the obligation of reading. After that is the obligation of having intent. Why is it that in the second chapter it is all about the kavana, it's all about intent? Because it says it shall be on your heart. The implication of being on your heart is that it's something that you're focused on, something that is actually is, is deep-seated to who you are. In the first chapter, it says that it shall be on your heart. So if the implication of is what teaches you that it has to have kavana, in the first chapter as well, we say that should also teach you you have to have kavana. This is what is different about these two cases. What happens is like this. What we're saying is that in the first chapter, you need to have in mind, you need to read it and you need to have intent. You need to have focus. After that, you just have to have focus, you just have to have intent, but you don't have to read it out loud. Why is it that in the first chapter you have to have the mitzvah of reading it with the intent? Because it says it should be on your heart. And you should speak it out. In the second chapter it says, it should be on your heart, to speak out these words. Same exact principle. When it says it's not referring to the words of Shema, it's referring to the words of Torah. And this is what the Torah is telling us. Teach your children Torah. That it should become fluent in their mouths. Right? So in the second chapter is not referring to the words of Shema, it's referring to the words of Torah instead. We learned in Abraisa. Up until there is when you need that kavanas halev. Now the Gemara should this is a new word kavanas halev, not just intent, but intent of your heart. These are the words of Rameir. Amar Rava halacha kiramir. Rava says that halacha is like Rameir, and only the first first Shema Yisrael and Baruch Shein you need to have a high level of kavanah. We call kavanas halev. You need to have something more than just the, what the meaning of the words. And I'm sorry, something more than just I am fulfilling a mitzvah. You have to have, at bare minimum. You also have to have 
what is the meaning of the words that I'm saying? What does Shema Yisrael actually mean, right? So generally speaking, when it comes to Daven, you don't necessarily have to have in mind exactly what the words mean. But what we're saying is you have to have in mind what the words mean at minimum. And you also should have in mind not just what the words mean, but also that I accept upon myself that these words are true. In other words, that Hashem is the only God. Anybody who says Shema Yisrael Hashem Hashem Echad and says it very long, takes a long time for them to say that word, then Hashem will lengthen the years and their days. Amar Yaakov. Yaakov says, And when do you lengthen it? You lengthen the dalit, right? So you make the dalit longer than it would have been in a regular, regular situation. Amar Ravashi says, Just make sure that in your in your haste to lengthen the dalit, you might end up going too quickly on the ches. Right, you say echad, and just quickly say echad without saying the, without really focusing on the ches at all, and you don't really say the ches. That would be a problem. Yirmiyah was sitting by Rechiyah and he saw that Rechiyah was like really focusing on Shema, and, and he was just taking a really long time to say the word Shema, and he's taking, taking such a long time, and he said to him, Amalek, Kivan, you don't need any more kavana than the fact that you should think to yourself, Hashem is the master of the universe in all four directions and upwards and downwards, and that's all you should have in mind. Anything more than that, and you're going to be wasting time, and you're not going to be able to daven tefillah b'tzibur. You're not going to be able to daven shmona esrei together with the rest of the congregation. So that, that's the kind of like the minimum amount of, of thought that we should have when we're saying shema is that Hashem is the master of the four corners of the universe and what's above us and what is beneath us. So the Gemara says, up until you finish the words of the first chapter of Shema, it has to be ba'amida. It has to be standing, right? In other words, not necessarily standing as opposed to sitting, but it has to be you're not moving around. Because if you're walking around, then you're going to lose focus as you're walking. Um, it's, it's possible that that's a similar idea, but not quite that. In the middle, if you're walking. In Perkei Yavos, yeah. You see something nice. Right, you're in deep trouble. Yeah, yeah. Capital punishment. Capital punishment, that's right. So only up until Allah you need to be in one place. You need to be sitting or standing, but not moving. Rabbi Yechon says, the entire chapter has to be done. Be'amida has to be done standing in one place. But also, Riechen is going according to his reasoning. So, 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 so you actually can't. You actually can't say the Shema when you're walking. Because earlier it sounded like you could say the Shema when you're walking. Beis Right, but this yes. this contradicts that. I think what we have to say is, I'm not sure if it contradicts that. It probably does not, because we normally pass in like this hill. I think what we have to say is that this meant, in general, not every part of Shema has to be said in one specific position. But it is true that whatever position you choose, whether it is standing, whether it is sitting, whether it is leaning, that for the first chapter, it's going to have to stick like that. But you could choose whichever position you want. No, no, I'm not talking about position. I'm talking about actually if you're in motion. Right, so in in motion is going in motion in motion is going on the second two chapters, not on the first chapter. Remember, because the second two okay. chapters you are allowed to walk. We're just saying that the first chapter is limited to staying in one position. Okay, good question. Okay. We learned in Ebraisa, 
Shemai Yisrael Hashem Lagein Hashem Achad Zukriyash Mashal Rabbi Yehuda Nasi. Rabbi Yehuda Nasi, you know what the Kriyash Mashal that he would say? He would just say Shemai Yisrael Hashem Lagein Hashem Achad, and that was it. That's the only thing that he would say. Amalei Rav Lerufia. Rav said to Rufia, Lei Chazina Lei LeRabbi to Makabel Machas Shemayim. He says, I have never seen that Rabbi, our our teacher, Rabbi Yehuda Nasi. I've never seen him accept upon himself O Machas Shemayim. Right. So what we understand is like this. Rebbe was teaching Torah to his students, and he was teaching Torah, and the time for Kriya Shema would come, and they never saw him stop, and uh, guys, I'm taking a break now, because I gotta say Shema, he didn't do that. So the assumption was, he's not saying Shema at all. You ever notice that every once in a while, in the middle of the morning, he all of a sudden will stick his hand over his eyes. You know why he's doing that? It's not because he didn't want to see something, it's because he was saying the first verse of Shema. In other words, the other Tana thought, I don't see him taking enough time to actually say the whole Shema. So it must be he's not saying anything. He said, you're right. He's not seeing the whole Shema. He's just seeing the very first verse of Shema at some point during davening. At some point during, while he's teaching all of his students. And at that point, with Kabbalah of Ol Machas Shemayim, at that point, he is accepting upon himself the yoke of heaven. Chazer, okay, so then the Mar is going to ask the next question. What's interesting is Halacha actually does bring this down. If somebody is teaching Torah to the Rabbin, to a, a large group of people, and they start teaching Torah before the time that you could say Shema, and they continue teaching Torah, and they're going straight. <clears throat> and it gets to the time when you have to say Shema. They should not stop for the entire Shema. They should only stop for Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokim Hashem Echad and Baruch Shem, and that's it. Shema Yisrael, because that's when you say Shema Yisrael, it's completely Omach Shema. And what you're saying is, I listen, Israel. Hashem, our God, is the only God. There's higher levels. No, for sure. There's higher levels of Omach Hashemayim. But the question is, someone who lives with this belief, somebody like Rebbe, who lives with this belief on a very high level, that's enough. No, I know. But what you're asking really is, what I, I'm saying that I could do the same thing in theory if I was learning with people from the time before I could say Shema up until three hours of the day have passed. I was learning straight without thinking any stops at all. I would be allowed to do the same thing. Right? I think the answer is that teaching Torah to the Rabbin, right? teaching Torah to an entire tzibur, a, a mass of people, is maybe more important than for him to be Makabal Ol Machas Shemayim on the higher level of saying the whole first chapter of Shemayim. Um, now, the Gemara then asks like this, Did he then go back later in the day and say the rest of Shema, or did he not even bother saying the rest of Shema? Barakabara says, Barakabara says, you did not go back later and say the rest of Shema. And Shimon by Rabbi Omer, Shimon, who's the son of Rabbi, said, he actually did go back and say the rest of Shema. I believe that he didn't go back. And he did not go back and say it later on in the day. Then that is why we have a, uh, there was a, they knew that because they were students of Rebbe, that every single day he would make an emphasis to say something about Yitzhiya's Mitzrayim. And when he was teaching Torah, he would always figure out some sort of connection to Yitzhiya's Mitzrayim every day. So the Gemara is saying, well, according to me, he didn't say anything about Yitzhiya's Mitzrayim because he never went back later in the day and said anything about Yitzhiya's Mitzrayim. You have an obligation to talk about the, the um, redemption from Mitzrayim every single day. So if he was going to say it later in the day, then he wouldn't have needed to talk about it in the Torah learning. But clearly, I'm right. He didn't say it later in the day. And that's why he made a point of emphasizing every day while we're learning Torah. He would always emphasize something about Yitzhiya's Mitzrayim, because otherwise he would not fulfill that mitzvah. But according to you, why did he do that? According to you, who claims that he actually did go back and say the whole Shema later, so why, why did he have to... So why was it important for him to mention something about Yitzhiya's Mitzrayim every day? The more answer is it was important for him to say the, the, the emphasize the going out of Egypt during the first three hours of the day. 
even though he was going to go back later and say the entire Shema in six hours into the day, he wanted to say something about Yitzhiyah's Mitzrayim in the first three hours of the day when it is that Chazal, when it is that our sage just said that we should mention Yitzhiyah's Mitzrayim in the first three hours of the day. Well, I don't get the question. Well, we talked about before. Yeah, yeah. Really, right? mm -hmm. Because what you're assuming is, okay, so, so Yaakov is asking, I think, is that if we're saying that there's a mitzvah to talk about Yitzhiyah's Mitzrayim, presumably the reason why there's a mitzvah is so that we can remember that which Hashem took us out of Mitzrayim. That act of remembering has to have some level of intent. Is that what you're asking? And if that's true, then why did Mara say earlier that that's not part of the obligation to have intent at that point? So it really depends because it's unclear what level of intent we meant earlier. We might have meant a higher level of intent. We might have meant not just intent to fulfill a mitzvah, but intent that you actually know what these words are saying. And that perhaps would mean you don't need for the TSM Mitzrayim for the, for the going out of Egypt. Amr Rav Ila, Marei Derev Shmuel Bar Marta, Mishmei Derav. The guy is on his bed and he's about to go to sleep and he says, oh, I didn't say Shema. And he starts saying Shema Yisrael, he puts his hand over his eyes and right when he finishes saying Shema Yisrael, he gets overtaken with sleep. Yatsa, he has fulfilled his mitzvah, right? So ideally one should say more than that, obviously, but that's technically the bare minimum to fulfill the mitzvah of saying Shema. Amalir Nachman said to Daru, his servant, if Sukkah, Kama, Sarya, Tvei, Sorry, Tzara. He says, when I am saying Shema, and you see I'm starting to doze off, make sure that I get that first, that first uh, Pasuk, the first verse of Shema Yisrael out. The rest of it, so you don't have to bother me that much if I didn't end up getting it out. I'm going to say, Rav Rav the Rabbah. Rav Yisab said to Rav who was the son of Rabbah, Abucha Heche Ha've your father, what did he do? How careful was he? Amalei B'Suka Kama Ha'vet Kamet Star. Now, when it came to the first Pasuk of Shema, Shema Yisrael, Shema Yisrael, Shema Yisrael, he bothered himself and made sure that he fulfilled the mitzvah no matter what. When it came further than that, he didn't necessarily fulfill, he didn't necessarily bother himself to fulfill the mitzvah if there was some sort of some sort of unavoidable circumstance where he could not keep himself awake. Um, so it happens to be in halacha there is actually a machlekas rishonim. There is a dispute amongst the rishonim what part of shema is the raisa. The opinions range from only Shema Yisrael and Baruch Shem are the raisa, are a Torah obligation, all the way up to in theory all three of them are Torah. All three of them are a Torah obligation, or alternatively, perhaps the first, first pasuk and the first chapter are a Torah obligation, and perhaps the first pasuk, first chapter, and second chapter are a Torah obligation. This point of the Gemara definitely seems to indicate that only the first, only Shema Yisrael is a Torah obligation. Amar Yisim, If someone is lying on their back, they should not say Kriyashma. Mikrohu the the they don't have to do. It would sound like, but it's okay for them to go to sleep on their back. It's just not okay for them to read Kriyashma on their back. Okay, so Rabbi Shuba Levi cursed people who would go to sleep on their back. So clearly it's not okay to go to sleep on your back. The reason, the reason for that is, one second, I can only mute my audio. Whoever, whoever's audio is on, can you please mute yourself?
you're not talking, please be on mute. I promise there are probably people who are not acting by their computer right now. Okay. So, so the Gemara says like this, it is not permitted to go to sleep on your back because if you go to sleep on your back, you might cause yourself to become aroused and that will lead to issues. So the Gemara says, it's not just not permitted to say Shema on your back, it's also not permitted to go to sleep on your back. So the Gemara says, well, Rabbi Yeshua Levi, right, Layat Aman, so Rabbi Yeshua Levi cursed him out. So the Gemara says, if it comes to lying, going to sleep, you're allowed to go to sleep even if you're not, if you're on your back, but you're leaned over a little bit, that's okay. However, when it comes to davening Shema, even if you are leaning a little bit on your side, that is still not okay. So what we're saying is like this, when it comes to actually going to sleep, you're not allowed to lie on your back fully. When it comes to saying Shema, you're, you're not allowed to lie on your back, but you are allowed to, and you're not, I'm sorry, when it comes to saying Shema, you're not even allowed to recline on your side, you have to sit up fully. Oh, Rabbi Yechanan actually did lean on his side and say Shema. Rabbi Yechanan didn't have a choice. He was very large. And because he was very large, he didn't really have a choice to sit up in bed. He would have to lean on his side and say Shema. And therefore, that was okay for him. That's a good question. I don't know. We don't, we don't have an indication for that. Right. Right. Yeah. What is interesting also is that Rebbechan is considered to be an incredibly beautiful man. So it just shows that uh, something has changed, I think. So the recording the mission. The mission says that in between chapters, you're allowed to ask how someone is doing. So the first opinion of the mission said, and then it says, and you can also respond. What type of response is okay? What type of person is it okay to respond to? If it is only okay to respond to someone who is even just a kavod, just something out of respect for him, if you're allowed to even initiate to someone who you respect in between chapters, obviously you're allowed to respond to someone who you respect in between chapters. So clearly, you're allowed to initiate in between chapters for someone who you respect. But you're allowed to respond, hello, to anyone at all, not just someone who you respect. But then what do you do at the end of the Mishnah? At, in the middle of a chapter, you can ask how someone is doing out of fear for them, a fear of them. And then you can respond. What type of response are we talking about? What type of response is justified? If we're talking about someone who you fear, if you're even permitted to initiate the conversation, it's then obvious that you're also permitted to respond to his questioning. It must be that you're only permitted to do it, I'm sorry, you're even permitted to do it in a case of where you just respect them. So I need the Rabbi Yehuda. Then this actually turns out to be exactly the opinion of Rabbi Yehuda, who's the second person in the Mishnah. Because Rabbi Yehuda said, that we learned in the Mishnah, when you are in the middle of the chapter, you can ask how someone is doing only out of fear. You're allowed to respond even out of respect for them. In between chapters, you're allowed to initiate even out of Respect, not not just out of fear, just even out of respect is enough. You're allowed to respond to anybody at all. So it would come out that the opinion of the of mayor and the opinion of Rabbi Yehuda would be exactly the same. So we have to say that Rabbi Yehuda, sorry, the 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 Rameir does not knock it down and notch it all. Rameir says it's exactly the same. Whatever you're allowed to initiate, that that type of person is the type of person to whom you are allowed to respond, and nothing lower for the person you're responding to. So. What do we say then? We had a problem with that because we thought that that would be obvious then. So the Gemara says, 
This is what really you have to have, how you have to read the Mishnah. And this is what it should be reading as. When you are in middle of, in between chapters, you're allowed to ask what someone is doing out of respect for them. But of course, you're also allowed to respond. When you're in the middle of a chapter, you're allowed to respond, you're allowed to initiate out of fear. But, and of course, you're also allowed to respond out of fear. These are the words of the mayor. Yuda takes it down and now she says, whatever you're allowed to initiate, one level below that you're even allowed to respond. But if you are in the in-between chapters, you can ask, you can ask a question out of respect. And you are allowed to say hi to any person at all. We learned in a price like this as well. If you are in middle of saying Shema and you bump into your teacher or to someone who is greater than you, if you're in between chapters, you are allowed to ask them how they're doing out of respect. And obviously, you're also allowed to respond. And if you are in the middle of chapters, you are allowed to ask, you're allowed to initiate conversation out of fear for them. And obviously, you're also allowed to respond. These are the words of the mayor. So we're bringing from this price that the price says explicitly the read that we wanted in the Mishnah, which is that indeed the mayor is saying that it's the same level for initiating and for responding. And Rabbi Huda is saying one level below that for responding, one level below what he says is necessary for initiating. Five more minutes. Let's see where we can get up to. If you're in the middle of saying halal, if you're in the middle of reading the Megillah, are you allowed to interrupt at all? Here's the question. Do we say that when it came to Kriyashma, that Kriyashma is an obligation on a Torah level, and still you're permitted to interrupt during certain chapters. So when it comes to halal, that is only an obligation to say halal on a rabbinic level, of course you're permitted to interrupt, right? But what's the other side of the question? Or do you say, pursuing Nisa Adif? The fact of the matter is that the mitzvah of halal, of reciting the halal on days in which we got saved, or reciting the Megillah, that's considered to be the mitzvah of pursuing Nisa, of publicizing a nase, publicizing a miracle that Hashem has done for us. And perhaps when you're publicizing a miracle, there's no such thing as interrupting at all. He says you are permitted to interrupt both by halal and by Megillah, and you don't have to worry about it at all. Amar Rabbah, Rabbah says, Yavam shayach gamer behen esa halal, bein parak parak paisik, beemsa parak ene paisik. So Rabbah says like this, there are days in which we finish the whole halal. In other words, there are certain times in which we are obligated to say halal on the Raisa level, and we say the whole halal, right? Right, so let's say a day like Pesach, the first two days of Pesach, a day like um, Sukkot, right? There's a whole bunch of days in which we say halal, not, not on the Raisa level in the sense that it's a mitzvah, the Raisa, to say halal, that Hashem said you should say halal on these days, but on the Raisa level in the sense that given a certain set of circumstances, we are obligated to say halal. Right? So not that Hashem actually said, this is a day when you say halal. Hashem said, we have a certain set of circumstances, you say halal. So some of those days are on sukkahs, right? You say halal, the entire halal. But a day in which we only say the half halal, it's not as much of an obligation. So on a day in which you're saying the whole halal, in other words, more of an obligation, halal. In between chapters, you can interrupt. When it comes to the middle of the chapter, you cannot interrupt. Days in which we don't finish the whole halal, even in the middle of the chapter, you're allowed to interrupt because that's a lower level. And it was a day in which they don't normally say the whole halal, and he did not interrupt to say hi to him. 
Shani Rabbi Shiva, the Lech Hashem Elohad Ravina. Well, Rabbi Shiva was not exactly such a distinguished person in the eyes of Ravina, and therefore Ravina said, it's not worth it, my father, to interrupt my halal for you. So Ashiyayin, who used to say over rices in front of Rabbi Ami, so he asked Rabbi Ami a question. If someone is currently in a tainus, someone is currently fasting, are they allowed to taste food, right? Is the prohibition of eating on a tainus, is it a prohibition of an act of eating and drinking? In which case, tasting but not swallowing is not considered eating and drinking. To eat and drink means to actually have to swallow it. So are you allowed to taste food and spit it out on a fast? If it's all about not eating and drinking, you should be allowed to do it. Or is it that we accepted on ourselves not to get any benefit, not to get any pleasure through an act of eating and drinking? And if it's about getting the pleasure, so then even putting the food in your mouth and getting a taste, that might still be a problem. He says you're allowed to taste, and there's nothing at all, nothing wrong with that. We learned in Bryce like this as well. If someone is going to taste food and spit it out, they don't make a blessing. And if someone is fasting, they are allowed to taste, and there's nothing wrong with that at all. Add kama up until how much food can they taste until we start saying no, that's becoming a problem. They say they are allowed to taste up until the shear of a revius. So it depends. It depends on what what sort of food, and it depends on different opinions. But like be somewhere like two and a half ounces, probably something like that. It could get a lot bigger, also according to other people. Like five and a half. Yeah, so we're really about tasting. We're not about actually actually drinking. Actually drinking is a little bit different category. Let's do a tiny bit more. Amar Rab, Rab says, If anybody says hi to his friend before he's davening, as if he has built a offering, an un, sorry, built an unauthorized altar and brought an offering on that altar. He quotes the passage, it says, Remove yourself from a man, who has the breath in his nostrils. How, with what is he distinguished? Who? I'll take you bamet. Don't read it as he, what, with what is he distinguished in front of you? Ella, bama, right? Read it as a bama. That literally when you say shalom to someone, the Gemara is saying, you know, it's, it's a drush. The Gemara is saying that if you say hi to someone before diving, it's literally the equivalent of building an unauthorized altar and offering an offering on it. Shmuel, Shmuel says, you don't have to read it exactly like that. You don't have to change the pronunciation from Bamat to Bama. You could rather read it as What were you thinking that you're giving respect to this guy and not giving respect to Hashem? The question is, what do you mean? We already learned that if you're in between the chapters, you're actually allowed to interrupt for a person. So that seems to say that that's not true. It is okay to talk to someone. The respect for other people can dictate that you should talk to them. And it's not considered disrespectful to Hashem. Umashib, and you're allowed to respond. Rabbah says, when is it a problem? When you specifically went out of your way to go to someone's house before davening, that's a problem. If you bump into them before davening, then that's okay. And if you bump into them, you're even allowed to interrupt between the chapters. It's forbidden for someone to busy himself with his own personal obligations, personal desires before davening. As it says, the way one should do something is that he should set out the path in front of him, and then he could go out. He, he should be righteous in front of him, and then he should go out to the path. In other words, first he has to take care of that, and then he could go out. Another statement, very similar. Anybody who davens and then afterwards goes out into the into his way, Hashem will fulfill his desires and take care of what his needs are. 
Shinemaris. It says, Tzedek Rafan of Yehalich, the Yasum and If you righteousness in front of you shall go, then Hashem is going to place the path in front of you that you fulfill what you are looking to fulfill. Okay, so what I'm going to do tonight is I'm going to record the rest of this doc and I'm going to send it out either later tonight or early tomorrow morning. So hopefully people are able to listen to that before Shabbos. Okay, take care.